Welcome to It's Only Rock and Roll from Music Heritage UK, a semi-regular podcast series exploring music history. This time we're exploring the Ricky Tick Club, which ran from 1962 to 1966 and brought bands like the Rolling Stones, The Who, Cream and Jimi Hendrix to the home counties of southern England and towns like Windsor, Guildford, Hounslow and Reading. We met Martin Fuggles, one of the first DJs at the club in Windsor, the birthplace of Ricky Tick. He also runs a website dedicated to the history of the club. I'm Martin Fuggles. Got involved with the Ricky Tick in 1965. It had been going for several years by then. That came about because I'd been working as a DJ (laughs) at the Carlton Ballroom in Slough. That in turn had come about because in the very early 60s it had been a traditional ballroom and was actually owned by a a 1940s, 50s band leader called Lou Prager. Um, But he'd started to introduce on certain nights, pop nights as he would have called them I think, Um, still had the the waltzes and foxtrots on Saturday night. And he had a guy called Phil Jay, who was his regular DJ, and he did a Sunday afternoon from three till six. And he also used to do a couple of nights in the week when they'd have local bands in. And at one stage, and we're talking probably early 62, they decided to invite people out of the audience to introduce a couple of records. Um, I'd already chatted to, to Phil and had spoken, uh, had, had taken records in for him to play and stuff like that. So I was the first volunteer. <laughs> um, and there was a photo in the local paper um, of me with, um, I think, my sister on one side and one of her friends on the other side of Phil Jay playing the first guest record. And about three months later... Um, Lou Prager decided that he wanted to extend the Sunday afternoon session into the Sunday evening session. They called it a Sunday marathon. Uh, But unfortunately, Phil Jay, the regular DJ, already had an evening gig in Hounslow on Sundays. So they asked me if I would like to do the second half. So I started, I think it was, I think the first one was June or July 62. Um, and they had them once a month for about three months, and then it became a weekly thing. So that's how I started DJing or playing records. I was the bloke who played the records, and I don't think the term DJ was used at the time. <laughs> Indeed. Um, what sort of age were you at that time? I was a. I was late teens, I guess. If it was 62, I would have been what 17, 18, something like that. Mm. Um, in the meantime, the Ricky Tick, was, that, that was in Slough, the Carlton Ballroom in Slough, just across the bridge, across the river in Windsor, the Ricky Tick um, was starting to uh, grow. Uh, Ricky Tick started out as a jazz club, a trad jazz club. Um, a couple of guys, Philip Hayward and John Mansfield, came out of the army. Um, I don't know an awful lot about the, the early history, but they decided this was a way to make a few bobs, so hired a room... Um, at the back of a pub called the Starangata in Pescud Street. It's spelt Peascod, but it's pronounced by the locals Pescud Street. And that's where they started um, as a trad jazz club. Fairly quickly um, became interested in different 
genres of music, in particular what they termed R&B, the term R&B means different things to different people and has, has done for many a year. And they started having R&B nights. And one of the first bands that they put on in the Star and Garter, um, we're talking December 61, if my memory serves me correctly, was a, a group called the Rolling Stones. And this was way before they started making records or became you know, um, widely known. Obviously, they were playing on the club circuit, not just in Windsor, but... Um, in, in Richmond and Kingston and well, I'm not sure about Kingston but um, Eel Pie Island certainly and obviously the London clubs as well. And they played, they must have played ooh, 20 or 30 times at the Star and Garter and outgrew that. John and Philip then took on or put on some nights at the Thames Hotel, which was a bigger venue just down the river from where we're sitting now. It's the only, only one of the three Windsor Rickettick venues that still exists in one form or another. The building's still there, but it's completely different now. It's called Browns. And that's where I first saw the Rolling Stones. Um, I came over and saw them a couple of times there. Um, this must have been probably September-ish, 62. Before I was a DJ at the Ricky Tick, I was still, I was actually, I'd already started at the Carlton by then. And the Ricky Tick, 
went on to become a real icon in, in the 60s um, and John and Philip actually used to promote at various venues in the home counties. Uh, I think John once counted up over 40 different venues they used over probably a period of about six or seven years. All with the same name? The they used Wikitick as their as their their name. That's right. Yes, that was that that was pretty. They did have. I mean, I, I've been trying to compile a spreadsheet to, to list all the people who appeared, and they were certainly were American artists appearing. Mm. Um, I mean, in the later years when I was involved, um, Stevie Wonder was probably the biggest name. Um, yeah. One of my small claims to fame still is that I've got a poster with his name and my name on it. <laughs>
Um, but yes, they would they would bring American or, or take advantage of American artists who were here and put them on. But the the, the, the biggest draw, certainly in sort of 64, 65, would have been Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. Um, by 66, probably Gino Washington's Ram Jam Band were matching Georgie in terms of the people they would bring in. But you had lots of other British names, um, you know, Zoot Money, um, Alexis Corner in the early years before I was involved. Um, Herbie Goins and the Night Timers, Ronnie Jones and the Night Timers. Um, I think we even had Mr. Stewart there with, with a steam packet on a couple of occasions. Um, Rob the Mod, bless him. Um, but it was, so it was by and large British bands, um, some of them better known than others, but all on, on the quotes R&B circuit at the time. And it, it, it wasn't just a local event, certainly the night, the Saturday nights at Clewer Mead um, drew people in from a long way. I remember once talking to, on a Georgie Fame night, talking to a couple of girls who come down from Lincoln. Right. Now, okay, coming down from Lincoln now would take a, f a few hours, but then, you know, we didn't have motorways in the way we got them now. Um, that would have taken some doing. So it was, you know, it, it had its drawing power. Now, I can't say that it was as strong in terms of drawing people in as say you know the Wigan Casino was in the early 70s and I know people from down here who used to go up to that um, but it still did draw people in from quite a um, uh, you know quite a wide area. The club adapted its booking policy to suit changing trends in popular music and culture. The R&B bands of the early 1960s soon made way for more psychedelic acts like Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd and Cream. Well, this is the interesting thing because Ricky Tick had to come out of Cluamede in around August or September 66. So they actually moved back to the Thames Hotel. The council took it back. Um, I think they'd only had a short-term um, lease on it anyway. But they came back to the Thames Hotel and that's when they... St I mean, Gino was still popular, probably the biggest draw there. But we also, in 67 started bringing in some of the new sounds and that included Jimi Hendrix, um, Pink Floyd um, and uh, Cream before they started recording and making names for themselves. But that was, I say, that was the first half of 67 and I'm, uh, I, I never did discuss it with him but I'm assuming that Philip, who was the brain's of, of, of the two guys who ran it, um, had seen the proverbial writing on the wall and decided that, you know, the Ricky Ticket had its day and it clearly had peaked in 65, 66. Um, and that the way forward was going to be more music with a meal, if you like. And so he bought the Pantiles at um, Bagshot, which was like a, a restaurant with a little area with a stage and and I can remember seeing P.P. Arnold there. Um, I went and DJed a couple of times and it really wasn't my scene. Um, but it was interesting that um, if they'd stayed at it, they could have gone on with these new acts, with new followings, and, um, but they didn't. And it was 1st of July 67 when the final night at um, the Thames Hotel was held. I, I think it came as a bit of a surprise to me 
Um, at that time, I was still doing Windsor. I was doing a few nights for them in Hounslow. They took over another club in Hounslow, which is the Attic, which they called the Ricky Tick for a while. Um, yes, I think he did. Yes, he did. As you know, if it had been early '67, again, they would have had these people on the circuit. Um, they often used to do that. You know, would play. Um, I can remember a couple of times they played somebody at Windsor. On, on sorry in Reading on Sunday afternoon and then Windsor Sunday evening and that sort of thing was done you know so um, so yeah they would have would have been playing elsewhere um, certainly they Jimmy Hendrix played Hounslow yeah and again from a purely personal point of view with the Ricky Tick going and I say I went down to the P- Pantars a couple of times it really wasn't my cup of tea and I'd reached the stage I guess where again the was beyond the peak um, the music was changing in a direction that wasn't really my cup of tea. Um, it's quite interesting. <laughs> um, I, I, there's a guy um, called Paul Anderson, known to everyone as Smiley, who wrote a book called Mods and New Religion. And he tracked me down three or four years ago, and he got a lovely quote in his book. And I, I better be careful about what I say here, but it's pink effing Floyd, if that's the future music, I'm getting out. That wasn't quite the case, but it was, it was really the fact that for me, the Ricky Tick had run its course, the music world was moving on, um, and I guess I was thinking, well, I, you know, the DJing was never meant to be a profession, it was just a hobby, a bit of fun. Um, time to really concentrate on, on my proper job. Um, so I stopped.
Martin explained how the club's booking policy fitted in with the music he was playing beforehand, where he would spin the original songs that the R&B acts would later cover on the stage. And then I got involved um, in April 65. Um, again, Philip, who's the brains behind the outfit, was always looking to put on extra things to draw people in. And I got wind of the fact that we did a, a, a record night in Slough, so I thought he'd like to do something like that in Windsor. Uh, the long and short of it was that I came across in April 65 um, and took a 100% a, uh, reduction in my salary from £2 a night to £1 a night, but it was for the kudos um, of being at the Ricky Tick, which really did have a reputation then. Um, and by that time also, the bit of the story I perhaps should have mentioned a little bit earlier is in about 64, they took on a big old mansion house on the edge of Windsor and um, created what for, for most people wasn't the Ricky Tick atmosphere. Blacked out walls, faces on the walls and the Ricky Tick logo across the back of the stage. Uh, very atmospheric and, and that was the Ricky Tick at its peak as far as I'm concerned and I think as most people who went concerned. Cluamede was the name of the building um, and I think they moved there in spring 64. So they'd been using the Star and Garter and then latterly more the Thames Hotel um, but really outgrew that and in the meantime they were also putting on events in, in other towns. Guildford I know was one of the first places that they promoted. can't remember the name of the pub but there's a pub by a roundabout which they used and then they moved into the plaza in central Guildford where I DJ'd a few times um, on a Friday night. So they were spreading their wings already, but, but Windsor was still you know, the, the epicentre, if you like, and, and, and where it all happened. Does anyone mind the Wooden Bridge in Guildford? Wooden Bridge, that's the, that's the Guildford one. That was, that was the original Guildford location, and certainly I had stones there a, a couple of times, I believe. Some of the promoters in London, particularly the Gunnell Brothers, who ran the... Was it the Flamingo or the scene? No, Flamingo, wasn't it? Flamingos it was the Gunnells. So, again, going back to the American artist bit, if, if the Gunnells had got somebody on... Um, at, at the Mingo, then we would almost certainly have them on um, at the Ricky Tick as well. Certainly some of the R&B artists, I think they had Howling Wolf a couple of times, again before I was involved. Um, but latterly, I mean, when I moved across, uh, it was primarily because of the, the music that was played, which was more my sort of music. I mean, I'd already tried to educate the people in Slough, and I think probably succeeded to some extent in taking him away from the top 20 and certainly you know I would play American versions of songs rather than British versions of songs even though um, some of the you know the, it was the early Beatles and, and Mersey sound and all that sort of stuff well it was quite often they would play some actually uh, some very good original tracks um, as covers um, but most of the audience didn't know they were covers, they thought they were originals that the, these guys had come up with. And, and um, where did you get the uh, music from? I used to get my records from a stall in Slough Market called David's Record Shop. They, they also eventually had a branch in Bracknell and a branch in Euston actually, just off the Euston Road. But the Slough Market was... And what they would do in those days, um, record shops could bring um, records in on a sale or return basis um, so he would bring in all the new releases play them for me and if I liked them and I'd buy them if I didn't 
and they weren't likely to sell, and he'd send them back. Um, but that's where I, you know, I got all my records. Um, it was well before the days of, of stuff being imported, so I would, while well, I was at almost exclusively American records but that I was buying, they were always British releases. All aboard for Night Train! Saturday night was the big band night, and in the early evening, um, as well as we had, <laughs> we had two turntables, 
which were put on top of, a, of a, an upright piano which had had the keys removed. It was painted gold, the golden piano. But we also had, in a control room off to the side of, of, of the room, another turntable. And in the early evenings, um, either I or more often Philip himself would put an LP or two on there and play them. So, but normally I would play before the band came on. Bands normally did two sets, so I'd play a bit before, probably half hour between the sets when everyone else went off down the pub to get a pint because it didn't have a license in the club. <laughs> it was just this Coke was available there. Um, probably certain other substances were being consumed too, but we better not talk about that. And then I'd play at the end of the evening. And then the Sunday evening, which was the first reason I really went across, was just a record night. So I was playing all evening. Was there a particular kind of flavour of records? Yes, yes, there was, and, and probably still is. Um, and although my sort of first love was 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 rock and roll, and um, Buddy Holly was my first big hero, and actually saw him live when I was still in short trousers. But if you talk about what I describe as early Motown, early Atlantic stacks, and similar records, which were not as it happened from Atlantic Stacks or, or, or Motown, but with a broadly similar sound. So that was the bulk of what I played. I would still play some you know, British releases which fitted you know, the R&B pattern, if you like. Martin continues to keep the memory of the club alive, firstly in maintaining and managing a tribute website, www.rickytick.com, which collects pictures, posters, flyers, personal memories and more about the Ricky Tick Club, and also through his Ricky Tick DJ nights where Martin brings his record collection out of retirement. We've done a couple of Ricky Tick revival nights here in Windsor, or tried to, um, with a, you know, a bit of interest. But what we tend to do now is what we describe as old solar Motown nights, still the same music, um, with a bit of 70s now, which my partner in crime can throw in, and of course Northern Soul, Again, a term that means different things to different people. Um, also features as well. Um, I, th- I, th- I think, it, I mean, you, you could sit the Ricky Tick alongside places like Epi Island that we mentioned earlier and the Crawdaddy in Richmond and obviously the scene, the Mingo and, and, and Discotheque and, and stuff in town. They were trailblazing. They were setting the scene and they were moving UK music in a different direction. You can't help wondering whether, you know, soul music in particular would have evolved in the way it did in the UK if they hadn't been there um, but you, you don't know because I mean we talked just now didn't we about um, you know the changes with with people like Hendrix and Pink Floyd and Cream appearing on the scene that was moving music in a different direction again mm. um, but I think the clubs did have um, a significant influence the way that when you mention them now to people um, you know who remember them. There is that sort of you know that warm glow inside when when they talk about it, and and, and I share that. You know, it's a, uh, you know they were great times. If only I could remember more about them. You know. <laughs> We'd like to say a big thanks to Martin for giving us so much of his time and for sharing with us his recollections of the Ricky Tick Club, as well as all the music he played there and the experiences he had. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening.